Why are you laughing? <laughs> you know exactly why. I do indeed. <laughs> and the listeners will just have to wonder. But we are back again, the comics course. An offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program. Offering graphical literature and society and history. English 209 uh, as a podcast. We are continuing our coverage of Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's classic From Hell. We are now jumping into chapter 6 as we meet Frederick Aberline. Uh, now, as most of the chapters do, this opens up with a black page with some quotes on it. I'm going to skim through them because I think a few of them are worth mentioning because Alan Moore really reveals his thoughts through these pages, and he loves sharing quotes with people. The first one is from Frederick George Aberline's special report on the murder of Polly Nichols, 1888, quoted and Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution by Stephen Knight, 1977, the book that was used as the inspiration for the plotline of the story, although certainly not the themes and meaning of the story. Uh And it says, quote, In the course of our inquiries amongst numerous women of the same class as the deceased, it was ascertained that a feeling of terror existed against a man known as Leather Apron. And there was some debate about who Leather Apron was, including could he be a member of a gang? Was he a local shop person? We'll get into that. Next quote is also from his special report. And it says, Although at present we are unable to procure any evidence to connect him with the murders, Joseph... And here's one of those names I have trouble with. Isenschmitcht appears to be the most likely person that has come under our notice to have committed the crimes. And this is, in fact, one of the persons historically that was considered a suspect for the crimes, including at the time. Mm-hmm. The next one is a quote from Aberline that was put in Cassell's Sunday Journal in 1892. Theories! We were almost lost in theories. There were so many of them. And this is certainly true. And we'll talk about some of those. We still are. Yep. The next is Aberline interviewed in the Pall Mall Gazette in 1903. So this was quite a ways after the murders. You can state almost emphatically that Scotland Yard is really no wiser on this subject than it was 15 years ago. I know that it has been stated in certain quarters that Jack the Ripper was a man who died in a lunatic asylum a few years ago, but there is nothing at all of a tangible nature to support such a theory. It should be noted that some people with associated with the uh, investigation of higher social standing uh, claimed definitively to know who Jack the Ripper was and even that certain information was suppressed on the request of a well-to-do family. And we may talk about that more a little bit further down the road. Um, However, some, like Aberline, insisted that those people were basically just obsessed with their own theories and that they really didn't know. And frankly, I believe Aberline's comments on this. Uh, Ongoing, the trial of George Chapman, 1930, H.L. Adam wrote, Aberline never wavered in his firm conviction that Chapman and Jack the Ripper were one and the same person. When Detective St. George Godley arrested Chapman, Aberline said to his uh, confier, you've got Jack the Ripper at last. Now, Aberline did say those things, But he also later walked back and said he wasn't so sure. Um, And then there's an ending quote talking about how Annie Chapman, 
just lived around the corner from Sir William Gull. I don't know the the geography of London at the time, so I don't know if that's really true, but certainly possible. And unsurprising, this chapter is going to be all about Frederick Aberline. Now, Aberline's become almost a mythological figure in his own right. And often when people want to invoke a Victorian-era copper, you know, they'll bring up Aberline as, you know, the stout London constable. He was not a constable. He was a detective by this time. Although he had been a constable in Whitechapel for many years, he actually got promoted and moved out of Whitechapel until the Ripper murders happened. He had just been moved out, like, days or weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, you know what? We need somebody who really knows Whitechapel. We're putting you back there. Which was, you know, seen in some ways as a demotion. Um, Now, even with only one murder done, it was such big news. Because it was so dramatic. Right, that people latched onto it. Now, there were certainly other brutal murders of women. Mm -hmm. Um, But this one was in style different. Now, Aberline's father had been a saddle maker, and that will become relevant later on. And we open in Chapter 6 with Aberline as a young man watching his father make saddles. His father died when he was only eight years old. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of transitioned to see the older Aberline sitting just like the young one did before going in to meet with Sir Charles Warren. And Sir Charles Warren is basically telling him, your job is to investigate the murders, but don't get too out of control on this. It's just one dead whore in Whitechapel. And of course, what he's not going to tell him is, we know who's doing it. It's Sir William Gole. He's super respected. And the Queen has his back. Because you only tell that to somebody you want to get killed. Mm-hmm. So this is a rough spot for Aberline. And he and it seems like he has a sense that something is off. And we already know from the prologue that he knew something was off the whole time, even if he didn't know the exact details. Now, Aberline goes to the inquest. He hears everything going on. He's told that he's going to get his instructions from Superintendent Cutbush. Now, I don't believe there was an actual police superintendent named Cutbush uh, with Scotland Yard anywhere in the vicinity of the Ripper murders. But there were a couple of interesting names going on here. Uh, Thomas Hayne Cutbush is a name, however, associated with the Ripper murders. He was born in 1866, about three miles from Whitechapel. He was in his early 20s when the murders happened and was from a respectable middle-class family. But he had a rough childhood. He went to New Zealand. Uh, His father remarried. He was an only child. His mother never married again after the divorce. And his mother and... His aunt, Clara, brought him up. And apparently, they were very religious. Mm. And some writers have proposed that they suffered from neurodivergent uh, conditions. But it's not clear what exactly. But it would have made life even harder on the young fatherless uh, boy of Cutbush. He had problems including behavioral problems, and may have inherited some neurodivergent things that at that time would have been diagnosed as mental illness. Mm-hmm. He also, apparent, many people believe, contracted syphilis from prostitutes in Whitechapel in early 1888, and it may have progressed rapidly. His behavior became aggressive. 
He was locked up in an asylum in Lambeth, which was not a nice place. Um, he escaped by literally climbing the walls and running away. Wow. Um, by 1891, he was convicted of stabbing two women in the ass on two different occasions in the middle of public roads. Um, uh, but he may have been aiming for somewhere else. It's not clear. Weird that it happened twice, though. Yeah. Uh, now, two years earlier, somebody else had done it. Probably a different person. But may have been inspired by Cutbush. Anyway, Cutbush ended up in an asylum and eventually died in one. And he is one of the figures that has been pointed out as probably Jack the Ripper. Um, because he went into asylum shortly after the last canonical murder. So this is Alan Moore's way of giving a little nod and wink to that. And I suspect from the inclusion that he may be Alan Moore's favorite for being the real murderer. Even while telling a story with Dr. Gold, which Moore has been very upfront about saying it's absurd. Gold couldn't have been the murderer, but it made for a good story for From Hell. Which I think is a very interesting theory that could be true. Yes, there are a couple of people who ended up in asylums, actually, that I think are good candidates. Also, there's a little nod here to the fact that the assistant commissioner is not present, who in theory would probably be handling some of this. Uh, and we'll talk more about him in later chapters of the story, but his name was Dr. Robert Anderson. Now, he had not had a vacation for some years. When he signed on to the Met, he had just been assigned the position when the first murder happened. And he had, on his doctor's advice, booked a vacation in Switzerland. Hmm. He was in Paris when the news reached him about how bad things were going. He famously initially refused to come home, saying something very snarky and dismissive to the effect of, one dead piece of street trash in Whitechapel and I'm supposed to cancel my vacation. Um, not very sensitive. Mm -hmm. And he was in Paris by the time things accelerated and then he canceled his plans and came back and he was largely mocked in the press and this did not help the public perception of the police. No. Um, even though, in fact, it was probably a reasonable course of actions. I'm not saying what he said was appropriate, but... You're taking over as the assistant commissioner for the London Metropolitan Police. Bad things happen on the streets of London. People are going to get murdered. I mean, if all you get is a telegram saying a prostitute was murdered, you know, do you want to come back and cancel your vacation? That's like saying you're never going to get a vacation. Yeah, because people are get murdered every day. Right. Um, but he was kind of still an ass about it. Yeah. So, all of this was feeding into the public's perception of the Jack the Ripper murders. Now, here in the story, Aberline's going to the inquest. He's hearing about all the data they have. He goes to see the body where she's laid out. He goes to the mass. And he meets with some of the other people working on it. One of them is Sergeant Thick. Sergeant Thick was an actual figure involved in the murders. He was a local to the Whitechapel area and loved to promote himself. He also arrested a guy with the nickname of Leather Apron, who he was absolutely convinced had to be Jack the Ripper, and yet had rock-solid alibis. Yeah. Although he had been arrested 
for assaulting women in Whitechapel in the past. So Thick's attitude towards the guy was probably well-deserved, but his fixation that he had to be Jack the Ripper was not. Mm-hmm. And it made things messier. There's even a funny scene in here where Aberline's walking down the road and sees a poster for Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Now, do you know who Buffalo Bill was? And I'm not talking about the bad guy from Silence of the Lambs. Okay, then no. Uh, Buffalo Bill was a figure from the American Wild West. Now, the American Wild West became its own mythology around the world. You know, this insane place of cowboys and Indians and all this stuff. And uh, Buffalo Bill was a showman. And he put on a Wild West show. And he put on a Wild West show with Indians and and cowboys and shooting tricks and horse riding. And, and it was apparently quite a dramatic show and was popular all over the world. Mm. I mean, he toured like a rock star in a way mm. with this huge entourage. And he actually was an interesting figure because, yes, he sold into the public demand for the spectacle. But he actually made an effort to educate people also and probably represented the indigenous Americans better than most people would. That's good. Um, maybe not as well as to, by today's standards mm-hmm. we would have liked him to, but certainly better than most people did back then. Mm-hmm. Which the effort uh-huh. was normally none. Yeah. And the people of England, uh, of London, were so outraged by these crimes that a lot of them stood up and said, well, no civilized white man could do this. No white man can do this at all. It's got to be somebody else. Maybe a Jew. Maybe one of those Indians at the Wild West show. So they actually escorted Buffalo Bill and and the Native Americans, indigenous Americans, first people, uh, to the police station for interviews. Because people had these theories. It had to have been one of these savages. And, of course, it was absurd. Yeah, it was fueled purely by racism. Right. And Aberline interviewed them um, because he interviewed everybody that was referred because otherwise they'd get roasted for not following up a lead. And it wasn't the last time. I mean, there was an actor. I think this may come up in a future issue. uh, But he was an actor who played Jekyll and Hyde on stage. And people reported him saying, no man that acts like that on stage can be right in the head. He was oh. acting. He was acting, motherfuckers. I mean, right? It's it's like I saw memes going around a few years ago mm-hmm. from uh, uh, they were shooting Wolf of, the Wolf of Wall Street and mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio, and they're showing this behind the scenes footage of you know DiCaprio standing there and he's loosening up and he's like, okay, okay, I got this, I got this, and you know he just looks like a guy standing there in a suit, and then they're like yell camera for action and boom, he's in character. And he's intense. And people are like, that's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, that's why he makes $10 million plus a movie, motherfuckers. Uh-huh. <laughs> Do you think he wouldn't be impressive? I mean, show me a guy working at Denny's who can do that and I'll be impressed. <laughs> when you're paid the money he makes, it's doing your job. Mm-hmm. I'd be disappointed if he couldn't do that. Right, exactly. Um, and so things continue. Uh, Polly's body is put in a box. It's carried. The scene they show here with these huge crowds gathered around to watch is historically accurate. People gather in huge crowds and followed the body to the field where it was buried. 
And I have a picture here, by the way, of Dr. Robert Anderson. I wanted to show it to you. I uh, forgot to show you a picture from the last episode. Mm -hmm. But just to give you an idea of what the police were thought of at the time, this was a sketch of Anderson, and he looks like somebody fed him salted, pickled, you know, eggs, and then asked him to smile. He looks like the mean old man who tells you to get off your lawn. I know. And, and it has been constipated since 1742. Uh-huh. That, that was not a pleasant depiction. Now, here's an actual photo of Charles Warren, the police uh, uh, chief inspector. And I gotta say, that mustache could hold up a bridge. It 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 looks like the one from the uh, Orient Express. Is that what it's called? Uh, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. The uh, uh, John Malkovich uh, version where he plays Hercule Poirot. Yeah, it looks like his mustache. I I think it's bigger than that. Mm-hmm. I think this mustache might qualify for its own census form. Uh huh. It's impressive. It is, especially because they didn't have much back then to help with growing facial hair. It, it does look like it defies gravity. Somebody uh-huh. might want to talk to him and see if he has the secret for space exploration right there. Uh huh. It's amazing. I'll have to see what the copyright is on that photo to see if I can tweet it out. It's it's that's an awesome mustache. Uh huh. That's not a seventies uh, porn stash. Yeah. That that's a eighteen hundreds. You know, I'm the conqueror of the free world because I'm British and I don't give a damn how ridiculous it looks, Stash. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so Polly Nichols, I want to talk a little bit about Polly Nichols' life. You know, we're here looking at her burial and I mentioned previously that most of these women had really rough lives. Her life in particular was pretty bad. Uh, it, it's fairly well documented that because she was British and we have uh, records from the parishes where she was baptized and all that, we know that she got married, she had children, her husband left her, and there was an argument between her family and him about why, uh, with basically her father claiming in court records that he basically slept with the nursemaid who helped give birth to their last child, and him saying, no, he cut off from Annie, uh, uh, sorry, Annie, uh, from Polly Nichols, because she was an alcoholic and going out whoring for money for booze when he wouldn't give it to her. Mm. And this is where she ended up in a grave Aww, um, in White Chapel. That's sad. Yeah, it was a rough life. And I, they go over some of this detail in the inquest. And the symbolism is not lost. I mean, one of the major problems that Moore has with the Victorian age leading into the 20th century is the treatment of women. In fact, that's a major theme of this that people need to consider. What did these women do that was really so bad? The only bad thing they did was threaten to reveal the evils of these institutions. Mm -hmm. That's it. And people wrote just horribly about women, basically saying that women were the root of sin, which we can go back to Eve and the book of Genesis and the Greek myths about opening Pandora's box. But clearly, Western culture has historically had an issue with wanting to blame women for being the origination of sin. Mm -hmm. And they continued that in the Victorian age with how they talked about women Mm -hmm. in places like Whitechapel, where they basically said these social problems are women, not that the women can't earn a decent living and men are willing to pay them for sex, but that the women are on the street offering sex. 
for money. Yeah, but not the men paying for it. Right. That's not the problem in their mind. Because it can't be men's fault. Right. And so this is the foundation of this chapter, the introduction of Aberline, who has become, as I said, this sort of symbol for the Victorian copper. In fact, when Guillermo del Toro did his Wolfman movie uh, about 10 years ago or so, um, it was Aberline played by... Uh, I am choking on his name. Uh, he, he played Elrond in Lord of the Rings. He was in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. He was Agent Smith in The Matrix. Hugh something? I'm choking. Anyway, somebody out there can let me know uh, in on Twitter or notes. By the way, you can find all the social media in my show notes. Please check them out. And so he's become the symbol of the, Victoria, of the steadfast Victorian copper. Mm-hmm. And what we see of him so far is he's filling that role. He's dotting the I's, crossing the T's. Yes, hounds, we hear you. I know it's Sunday. There are no freshmen for you to eat today. I'm sorry. You'll have to wait till tomorrow. It's a non-feeding day. And... Damn, they're spoiled. We, we get this great page with the body being carried with no dialogue that I love. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of it, Aberline goes to his wife. He tries to talk to his wife about his frustrations. This case kind of gets to him, um, but the wife is not sympathetic. He goes to talk to the cops again. Um, and basically he ends up back in Whitechapel looking around. And he ends up in a bar. And he ends up sitting down in a bar and a woman, a prostitute, who we've already met. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't give the name she gave us earlier. And I'll save that as a little surprise for future chapters. But she calls herself Emma. And Aberline doesn't say he's a cop. He says he's a saddle maker, which is what his dad did. And she kind of suspects he may be BSing her because she says... You have awfully nice hands for a saddle maker. But she doesn't explicitly call him on it. But she does talk to him. And she treats him kindly. Now he's buying her drinks. Which he's very happy about and says so. Mm-hmm. But I want you to remember back in the prologue. His, his vitriol towards the woman found on the beach. Who we don't even know for sure was a prostitute. But he had such pure vitriol for her. And here he is sitting down, taking comfort from one. And buying one drinks. Right. And they're not doing anything sexual. And he's saying they're not going to. He's just talking, and that's all he wants. He just wants company. And we're going to see what happens from here to where we get to that prologue at the very beginning. That takes place decades in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think this is going to be one of our shortest chapters ever, because that's only at 22 minutes. Wow. Wow, we kind of blasted through that chapter. Yeah. But I think I am going to call it here. I think it's okay to leave it at 22 minutes. Uh-huh. And um, is there, do you want to fill any time or do you have any parting comments? Not really. Is your pink-haired fox girl getting the crap she needs in the game you're playing? Yeah, I just need to get her talents up. I, I do have to ask you, is this what you do when I give you papers to grade? No, I don't know what makes you think that. Because usually the grades just have these random comments on them like, screw this domain. This is BS. I don't know what makes you think that. Okay. Well. It's stuck. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks. We'll be back 
with more historical context and murdering of oppressed women next week. Um, Where's the door? I'm out. Bye. Read comics. Bye.